Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Chanta Noon is a Cambodian author, cook, nonprofit leader, and survivor of the Khmer Rouge. In her new memoir, Slow Noodles, she details some of the stories of a painful past and hopeful future through recipes. With the help of Nashville native writer and reporter Kim Green and Chanta's daughter Clara Kim, Noon's story shows us how beauty and joy can come from processing pain. Now, Sarong Vitkori was born in a refugee camp in Thailand in the early 80s and then immigrated to the United States. In recent years, she's begun to explore and appreciate her Cambodian heritage, in part through learning to cook. Producers Tasha A.F. Lemley and Kim Green shared a meal with Sarong to learn a little about how food can serve as a strong connection between people and past. These are uh, shiitake mushrooms, which I used to not like mushrooms at all. I love vegetables, but I used to be so terrified of mushrooms. Now I'm eating them because they're in Cambodian food. <laughs> I grew up in Nashville since I was three years old. I consider myself a Nashvilleian, even though I wasn't born here. But, um, but so many Cambodian words and like these... Kim, I don't know what to say it in English. I only know it in Cambodian. And like, I feel like, wow, there's still some English words that I do not know that are just like basic. What? Like these, I don't know what you call it in English. Oh, a mortar and pestle. We call it tbal reibok. <laughs> when you're growing up here, you can't see that. Your parents do not speak English. And so, Unfortunately, you kind of kind of pull away from that. You see your parents as not representing something that fits into this culture. You want to be American. It was just kind of subliminal. For immigrant communities, it was about being American, being modern, going after the American dreams. And so if our parents did not speak English, they did not represent those values for us. Okay, we are cooking Cambodian food. And I'm making chamasul, stir-fry vermicelli noodles with tofu. Ooh. And in Khmer, it's called chamasul. Masul is the vermicelli noodles, which I have here. I am so thankful that I went to Cambodia and I learned these dishes. We never really once appreciated that when my mother cooked them, because they didn't, they didn't look all that pleasant either. <laughs> Especially when she, because, you know, like I have a lot of siblings, and so she could cook everything in a big pot. And when you're looking at it, it's like, what is this, you know? And my mother would be so disappointed because we didn't eat her food, and now we're making them. Uh, this ingredients, we call it Khmer uh, Krung. Khmer is another word for saying Cambodian. And Krung means ingredient. So there's this paste that is a combination of five different herbs, uh, lemongrass, lime leaf, galinga, garlic, and chili pepper. And so you basically use this to make that paste, and you just have to keep on hitting it until it forms, until it all mushes up and then becomes this paste. But this one, we're just gonna do a lot of garlic because I'm stir frying. There's two steps. You have to stir fry the vegetables and then you stir fry the noodles. It wasn't until I, just kind of my own personal search and investigation of what does it mean to be Cambodian living in Tennessee, you know? <laughs> you know, why is it that my mother and father are here? And I'm so thankful now that my parents didn't even speak English because I think it helped preserve more of the culture and the tradition 
although they did not pressure us to be Cambodian, we naturally be, uh, just gained this appreciation for them. And so now we're, you know, it's, we, it's like, oh, you're Cambodian American. <laughs> We're talking Cambodian cooking, culture and connection. Here with us today are the authors of Slow Noodles, a book being released today. Chanta Noon and Kim Green, thank you both for being here with us today. Thank you, Khalil. It is our pleasure and privilege. Thank you. Really an honor to have you both here. And also with us is Chanta's daughter, Clara Kim. Welcome, Clara. Thank you. Okay, now, now Chanta, you flew in from Cambodia just a few days ago, right? Yes, that's correct. And, and Clara, you came in from London? Yeah, on um, Saturday as well. Wow. 11 hours. I am grateful for your time and all the long traveling you've done just to be here, here with us today. So let me start off by asking, Chanta, what is Cambodian food? Um, Cambodian food is what we grown up and... We were raised, um, and um, it's our life, our culture, um, and our family. Hmm. I understand there's a difference between some of the food that's made in the home and the street food from the street vendors. Um, that's very, very true, and also depend on the level of the income of your family. That's the way you cook Cambodian food. Um, so um, it's like everywhere in in the world. Uh, with your income, you will, you will cook different food than the uh, the people with very low income. But anyway, it's uh, we we use the same um, ingredients that we cook kruong. Uh, and it's based on lemongrass, lime leaf, uh, galanga, um, um, turmeric. And also we have the what's uh, iconic for, for Khmer food, for Cambodian food. Mm. We season it with prahok. It's a fermented fish. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it also depends on the income of the family. We will pay for different price of prahok. And uh, that's what makes us um, different from other countries, different from other cultures, food. Now, you said, <clears throat> pardon me, you, that the income level depends. Is that the same for the street food? Like if I go to the street food, is there particular, like very expensive street food that's only for wealthy folks and then street food for folks who don't make much money? Uh, street food means uh, a, a low cost food. Okay. We they sell it on the street, but it's very very enjoyable and it's like affordable. Um, but if you go to a, a very expensive restaurant, you would taste something the same dish, but they cook it in different way and more delicate and um, mm. um, better prepared. And of course, you have to pay a better price. What do you like more? Do you like the fancy food or the street food? Um, I like street food, <laughs> but I also like to cook myself. Now, okay, I want to talk about that because, you know, you like to communicate through cooking, through your food. What can be communicated through food? Uh, love and sharing. That's I always, you know, put myself 
love cooking for friends, for my family, for my children. And the same way my mother did that for us, she put her love in and we knew she did it because she loved us. Mm. And the same way I repeat it in my life, uh, loving and sharing through cooking. Kim, let me ask you, what have you learned about your mother's home through the food that, food that she cooked as you were growing up? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm a child of the late 70s through the 80s, and I, and my mom was a working mom. So, you know, that was an era when uh, in American culture, there was a lot of food in jars and cans. <laughs> and I think our my mom had so little time. She was a school teacher that she really just had to assemble rather than cook. So there was there was more just making food happen than there was cooking. Um, but she came from a Southern family without much money. And so um, she grew a garden. Mm. And she, we had, so we had food from my grandmother's garden and canned food from my, that, that my mom and her mother helped can together. And we didn't do that as much when I was a kid, but we did have really wonderful garden-grown canned vegetables throughout throughout my childhood. And that came from, you know, the generations before. Did you develop the cooking bug as you got older? I didn't, ha you're right, I did not have it when I was a kid. I was not very interested in cooking. Um, and in the 80s, it wasn't, there wasn't sort of a culture of, chef celebrities or mm -hmm. or we didn't even in nashville there really weren't very many fancy restaurants there were chain restaurants so yes it took um leaving home and traveling and then especially getting to know chanta and clara they really switched on the cooking bug and the food loving bug for me now clara let me ask you tell me how you were able to feel your mother's love through her food um i think my mom has this magic through food um there's always a dish that she makes, no matter how you're feeling, a, celebra a celebratory dinner, a dish that she makes like pâté de foie, or when you're sick or you're feeling sad or you're missing home, there, there is a dish that will cure all of those feelings. Um, and my, my cooking skills, um, I actually learned from my mother when I was really young. I was always helping her in the kitchen. Um, I learned all the knife skills from her, how to chop um, spring onions in various different ways for various different dishes. But I didn't really learn how to cook and prepare a meal for myself until I left Cambodia to go to, to university in the U.S. Um, I really, really missed home. So I just called my mom and I learned my first uh, dish was a stir fry noodles. Mm -hmm. It was very easy. I cooked for all of my friends in college, and it's also the recipe in the book as well. So, um, and you've was, been gathering recipes. You've got uh, a whole collection now. Do you know how many recipes you have that I, you've gotten from her? I have no idea, but I skyped with my mother until two o'clock in the morning, okay. having a pot of soup ready, and um, I would send her about ten different dishes uh, a week, and she would sent a, a Word document back with some of the recipes. There are no measurements, <laughs> but I knew I knew exactly how much salt to put in a dish because... You get I, the feel. Yeah, I spent all of my life in the kitchen with her, so I knew I knew how much uh, all the ingredients uh, was were, were needed in a dish. You're like the recipe translator in a way yeah. because it went from word of mouth 
instinct tradition from Chanta through Clara, and then she helped us write these down so that people like me could cook these okay. dishes. I want to I want to talk more about the recipes in a second, but I do have a question that popped up. We just had Valentine's Day. There may be some people out there who are heartbroken. <laughs> Chanta, do you have a dish to heal the heartbroken folks out there? Um, it's not about Valentine's, but my heart was broken many times. And that's when I miss most my mother's dishes. Mm. So, yes, it's comfort food whenever you think about. And the dishes is uh, we call babo, sam chok. And that's when you feel unwell, when you feel cold. Um, it's a porridge and cook with uh, chopped pork and uh, top up with fried garlic and garnished with a green in, uh, onion and uh, a, a bit of uh, a chopped ginger and then a lot of mm. compote pepper, uh, ground compote pepper on the top. And that's uh, the cure. Uh, it's healing. Mm-hmm. It sounds healing. And I'm definitely getting hungry as we're talking. You know, but I understand yet your hometown, Batambang, was recently recognized by UNESCO yes. as a heritage site for cuisine. That's yes. really cool. Tell me more about the food there. Um, we, as a child, and I remember we, like the people from Batambang, we always very proud to be Batambanger. We never tried to be Tampen people, the big city. We never tried to imitate their, you know, accent because we are distinguished of people from Batambang. And the dishes from Batambang eh, are different from other regions of, of uh, the country. I think because we are bordering Thai and it's a bit of influence. Mm. And also my mother was a good cook and... Um, and that the, the memory of her cooking that helped me survive throughout hunger, poverty, whatever. And then um, we always keep that in mind. This is the dish from Batambang, from our family. Until recently, I was so thrilled that we got acknowledged by UNESCO. Uh, and I said, yes, uh, on, they, they, they should you know, realize that sooner. Mm. But we always believe the food from Batambang are the best of the country. That sounds like it. Now, we mentioned your book, Slow Noodles, is being released today. Released today. Congratulations to everyone. Thank you. Chanta, what does the term slow noodles, what does that mean to you? Uh, first of all, um, uh, slow noodles is my mother's uh, favorite dish. And it's a, a, a noodle with, with uh, soup noodles, but she despised the shortcut. So because she believes uh, the very good dish needs extra time and extra care, the same with extra love. And so she made the noodle out by hand, roll it piece by piece to make the noodles. So it took like the whole morning for, for three people to serve three people, and that's the togetherness in it. Um, and also it's the philosophy of her kitchen. Um, uh, everything needs an extra patience. And... And that becomes 
this philosophy of life. Mm-hmm. When I went through hardship or bottom of life, we need patience. And in a slow way, to the philosophy to rebuild my life. And again, I show it to the women I at the center we, we set up. We, um, if you want a sustainability future, a sustainable future, you need a slow noodle way. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to talk more about the center and the work that you do with women in later. But right now we've got a clip of you talking about one of your favorite dishes from childhood, ban chow, which it's, it sounds delicious. This is from 2018, the summer when you did the slow noodles cooking tour here in Nashville, right? I remember that. Did you have a good time? Very much, yeah. Wonderful. Let's listen to that clip. Banchao is kind of a, a French crepe, or you call pancake, but we fill it with uh, fried chopped pork and bean sprout. We wrap the banchao piece by piece in lettuce and uh, sliced cucumber and some mint or Thai basil and dip in uh, sweet and sour uh, sauce. But it's always fun together because we need many people to eat the bánh chèo. Once you make it, you have to make it a lot. You cannot make one or two for yourself. So it's always the meaning of family to get the nest for bánh chèo still there. That's the main memory and it's the, the main purpose for bánh chèo. <laughs> it really sounds like it takes a lot longer to make it than it does to eat it. Uh, yeah, so that's the, the, it's kind of a slow noodle dish. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you, you spend the whole morning, and, and I remember it, but um, um, because we put coconut milk in it. So my sister, the oldest daughter of the family, uh, had to do the job, and she had to wake up like four in the morning and then scrape the uh, coconut to squeeze the milk out. Wow. Uh, and then uh, we don't have uh, rice flour like now, so uh, she soaked rice overnight, and she had to grind it by hand. Wow. Um, yeah, so um, that's uh, from four until 12 o'clock, then we had manchel. That is a full work day, and your sister did this for the entire family as a part of it. Can you, can you describe the scene for us in your mother's kitchen in Batambong? Like, what was it like on those days when your mother and sister made it? Could you smell it happening? Did you, did you get excited for those meals when you were younger? Um, I was the one who uh, kept running in and out and hmm. uh, either asked for some or steal something and run away and... Uh, uh, like spring roll, her spring roll also very, very special. Um, and uh, uh, of course, I, as, as a youngest daughter, so I, I will get whatever I wanted. And um, <laughs> and that's something also, uh, a good memory. Yeah. Like, um, it never happened to me um, after that, but that's such a, the best memory of my life. It is... Is this recipe in the book? Yes. It is? Well, Clara, tell me, what does ban chow taste like to you? Oh, my gosh. Uh, ban chow tastes like Sunday. That's what Sunday should taste like. We make it for our friends. I, I um, have a lot of dinner parties in Cambodia because all of my friends are in love with my mother's cooking. And ban chow is 
probably one of the most requ- requested dish dishes um, from from my friends. Um, it's it tastes nothing like any other b a n c h a o you can find in Cambodia. Um, it's it's really really good. And um, my mom, the the b a n c h a o that she makes, sometimes she mix uh, mixes chicken and pork together. Sometimes she adds shrimp in them, and you. The the chef will not have time to eat because there'll be a line of people waiting in the kitchen, wow. taking turns to get their wen chow, and I can eat about three or four of them, and you should only eat one. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, it's uh, it's one of my favorite dishes to have, but it's extremely difficult to make, um, and it takes a lot of time. How can I try this dish here in Nashville? Well, you can come to our kitchen. And- <laughs> exactly, we can make it for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? Consider it a date. We're definitely going to do that. You know. So let me ask you: We're here in Nashville. Do you all have like a favorite Vietnamese restaurant in town? Yes, Where? I have. Uh, Vien Pha is one of my favorite restaurants, and my favorite um, dish to get is b o m o h u e It's a very spicy noodle soup from a region in Vietnam called Hue. It's in like central Vietnam, and I will eat that and will have that over pho any day. It's it's one of my favorite Vietnamese dishes. Okay, okay, Kim. I also love Vien Pha. That's my favorite place, and I love the bun bowls, the vermicelli bowls with with pork and spring rolls. I, I could eat that every day. Okay, Chanta, what's your favorite place in town? Here, um, I, I just follow Clara and uh, Kim, and uh, I, I I like it. I agree with them. Okay, yeah. I have a feeling my favorite place is going to be your kitchen. <laughs> I think that's I think. that I would say. Yes. Okay. <laughs> let, let's let's talk about the book a little bit. Kim, how did you and Chanta collaborate on this project? How did that come together? It started in 2011, and I was. Freelancing for um, a magazine in town that's now defunct called Her Nashville. It was a monthly women's magazine, and I got assigned a story about a collaboration between a Cambodian social entrepreneur and a Nashville philanthropist. And so I did that profile on those two, and um, then later that summer, the philanthropist, her name is Ann Walling. Uh, approached me and said, "Hey, would you like to do a longer project?" And so she proposed the idea of doing something with Shanta, the social entrepreneur. And um, we ended up deciding that it should be a memoir in her voice um, that we would that we would do together. We would write together. So um, we started corresponding, and then in 2012, I made my first trip to Cambodia, and I've made three trips. She's made Chanta has made multiple trips here, and so we just spoke to each other, cooked together, traveled together over a period of about six years, and. Um, And now we have a book. You have a book. It's been over a decade in the making. What's it like trying to get this book published? Well, that's what uh, the other six years were dedicated to. Mm. <laughs> it was very hard to get the book published, and I've I've heard from several people who are excited about this. And one of the reasons they're excited about it is they said, "Isn't it really hard to get international stories and memoirs published?" And I don't know how hard it usually is, but for us, it was hard. Uh, we heard while we were while we were sub, you know in submissions for this, we heard some some replies that were like, "We don't know how to find an audience for this," hmm. which feels like code words for 
we don't know what Cambodia is all about. So, mm. but, but, you know, we insisted, so, you know, if you don't know what Cambodia is all about, why not read a book about it? How about some curiosity? So anyway, we persisted and here we are. Wonderful. I want to take, I want to talk a little bit more, a lot more about the book when we come back from this quick break. When we come back, we're going to learn more about how Chanta and Kim got together to write the book Slow Noodles and its impact, potential impact on readers. You can stay with us. This is Nashville. Kalele Colonna, and this is Nashville. We're talking with Chanta Noon about her new memoir, Slow Noodles, with the help of Nashville native and writer and reporter Kim Green and Chanta's daughter, Clara Kim. Now, the book launches today with an event at Julia Martin Gallery, so head to slownoodles.com for more information. Now, you know, before, before the break, Kim, you were talking about how you and Chanta met the idea for this book to come and a little bit of the process of the difficult process in getting this book published. But in collaboration, one culture learning about another, learning about history, trust is important. Chanta is trusting you to help write her story to an American audience. How did, I want to hear from both of you, but Kim, you first, how did you, how did you all, how did you get, take steps to earn Chanta's trust? Well, I think the, the first thing that needed to happen was we needed to decide whether we should do the project. So um, I, the first trip I made to visit her in 2012, we had only met one time. We didn't, we didn't really know each other all that well. We had corresponded a little bit, um, and she had started to, to write her story to me. Um, but on the first trip, um, we jumped in her car, and we traveled around the country together with the job that she had at the time, and we had lots of time to talk in the car. Um, but there was the, the moment I remember was it was one night in a small rural place in a village and we bought a couple of beers out of a cooler and sat by the river under the moonlight and she said, I have a lot of reservations about this. I, I, I don't know whether people will be interested in my story. I don't know whether people will care and facing the past is very painful. So I don't I don't want to write a tragedy porn story and and I said, well, I don't think we should. I think if we if we do this, if you choose to do this, and it's up to you, then I think it should be um, a love letter to your mother and sister. Because what I noticed as we were traveling around the country, um, interviews were very difficult and painful for her. But discussions over meals flowed so naturally because, as you see even today, when Chanta is cooking, talking about food, remembering meals, uh, the memories come in a way that feels natural and is, is less, I think, less painful. So when when we had the idea of, of telling her story through her mother's recipes and her memories of those those meals that her family shared, um, and the and also the book being in, in honor of her mother and her sister and the previous generations of women in the kitchen, she, I, I think, she agreed to it. And so I hope that made her feel more comfortable with it so she can pick that up. Chanta, did you feel more comfortable as you got along in the process of writing this book, of telling the stories of your mother, your sister, and other women in your family who've been masters in the kitchen? Um, yeah, it, it, it 
helped me to feel better than just to tell the story about my pain, about the past that I've lost everything, everybody, uh, and even the country. So talking about food just like make me alive mm-hmm. and remind about the dishes. Like I said before, we are so proud to be people from Batambang. And I'm also very proud to tell that to people, uh, the, the dishes that we, we've been eating, you know, for every, every day of our life for the first nine years of my life. And I want to tell people how good my mother and my sister were. Um, and that helped me. But anyway, throughout the project, it's not only food we talk about. We have to remind uh, myself about what I have been through. It's it's not just only nine years, but it's about 40 years of my life that we had to talk about. And that's sometimes it's really hard. Most of the time, it's like when you tell the story, like you live in it again. Mm-hmm. Um and so many times I just delay the question, the, the answer, or I just want to run away. But um, we did it. How did you, you said you wanted to run away or try to avoid the question. How did you face the question? Um, what I learned uh, through my life is finish what I have started. So just bend our head, go ahead with it, and get it done instead of, you know, running away and still it's haunting you in your mind. So just let it done and finish it. Mm. That's a good lesson for us all to have. Clara, tell me about this. How? What do people in Nashville, what do they typically know about Cambodia? I think, I think the first thought that comes to people's mind if they have heard of Cambodia is the Khmer Rouge. And I think hopefully through this book that won't be the case anymore because there is so much in Cambodia, our food, our culture, our tradition, music, we have so much to offer. And um, I think I I felt like it, it became my responsibility when I left Cambodia is to tell people about how great Cambodian people are, how friendly we are, and there is so much to our history for a thousand years before the Khmer Rouge, um, and um, I, I, hopefully that that will be the case going forward with this book. Mm-hmm. Chanta, what, what brought you to Nashville originally, the first time? Um, um, like Kim said, unwilling. Uh, uh, is from a, a family who donated funding to our organization, Stung Trang Women's Development Center. And uh, I was invited to visit Nashville. Um, and Anne did many, many things to support Mekong Blue. And uh, she set up MekongBlue.com um, in Nashville, in America. Um, and I came to love and and respect her so much because every time we get any problem with funding and just simply send it more and say thank you Anne for giving me air to breathe and she said just keep breathing mm-hmm. and it it's so simple for somebody you never met and then 
so easy to support you financially that way. And um, and I feel like I owe unwilling something that I don't have anything valuable to pay back. Um, and that's when the, her idea says she wanted me to work with Kim on telling the story. And uh, I think that's one of the uh, encouragement to to help me to start this project. Mm. Okay, so let's hear a clip of you, Chanta, at your women's center in Stung Treng, Cambodia. Kim, set this clip up for us. Tell us about it. This is from, um, I think this is from my first trip in 2012, my first visit to uh, Stung Treng. So her women's center is uh, in a rural area up in the northeast of Cambodia. Stung Treng is the name of the province. And so she's she's just kind of introducing why did she start this center? What is it for? What's her philosophy of of helping women who are in poverty? And 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 that's what you're gonna hear. Let's hear it. I started this organization in two thousand one. We aim to support women who never been to school, illiterate, and who had no knowledge about health and hygiene and no access to um, health care to help them to to have a bit of literacy and and a skill to be able to to get a job to earn an income to improve their own life and support their children with the culture of Cambodia uh, uh, he stated, man is gold, woman is a skirt. It means woman doesn't need an education and she has to be uh, a dependent on the husband for, for her whole life. And this is hard. It's very vulnerable to be a woman in Cambodia. Therefore, with my own understanding and experience as a woman with an own income myself, I can see if she can get a job and earn uh, her own income, she becomes independent and she has her freedom to choose to get married uh, at whatever age she chooses to and how many children she wanted to. And that's what I, I, I love to see the women I work with to change their life that way. Okay, so you said something really powerful in there. Man is gold, woman is a skirt. That's an interesting saying. Um, tell me more about that. Like, what does that tell us about women's roles in rural Cambodia traditionally and even today? Um, that's a culture uh, a statement about men and women in Cambodia. Um so uh, the woman doesn't need an education because she's a skirt, she's a piece of cloth. Um, it still happens in the rural area of, of Cambodia nowadays. If the family has enough money to send one child to school, they will send a boy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they just teach the girl, um, you get married and you live uh, on your husband. So... Uh, whatever the husband treated her, she has to bear it mm. because she has no education, she has no mean um, 
no means to to be on her own and um and i i, I in my family uh it didn't happen to my mother my mother was my father's financial manager okay. so she's very powerful in the family um and she 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 managed the income of my father so that's how i was raised um uh she's not vulnerable in the family and she's the the manager of the family and and that's how i can see and also she told me get a job for yourself don't be a housewife it's such a hard life and um so i can see the culture of cambodia and i find it difficult to breathe when you live a life of a dependent Uh, on someone else mm-hmm. and you cannot control your life and you don't know you you don't have an education to uh, to have uh, uh, how many children you have you it just happened to you uh, uh, of whatever it is so um, that's what I started to work on uh, to share my experience with other women but It's easy said than done. Um, it's not overnight that you can be um, independent. Um, so it, it's such a hard work. And again, it's a slow noodle way mm-hmm. for these women. Um, uh, you have to be very patient and you have to work really hard to, to crawl out of poverty and hunger. What have you, what have you learned in your years of starting this nonprofit what have you learned about how to help women and families who are facing hunger and poverty in places like Cambodia who are trying to crawl their way out what have you learned in teaching them and helping them um i learned that every woman wanted to be independent and they cannot because they don't get the right support like the women at our center because everybody wanted freedom um, and that's why we at our center we were successful to have hundreds of women you know they every day we had new women come in and say i want to be a weaver i want to be a weaver and uh, and the weavers um, uh, in in their village other women came to them and say i want to be like you mm. and um And they choose the man they can marry. And that's something that significant um, uh, success in the community that what we are doing. Mm, yes. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Let's take one more short break. When we come back, we'll talk with Shanta Nguyen, her daughter Clara Kim, and author Kim Green about Slow Noodles and a book that uses recipes to create joy for people who have suffered from hardships. This is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Shanta Nguyen is Shanta Nguyen, pardon me, is a Cambodian author, cook, and nonprofit leader. 
She, her memoir, memoir, Slow Noodles, she details the stories of a painful past, talks about a hopeful future through recipes. She did this with the help of Nashville native writer and reporter Kim Green and her daughter, Clara Kim. Again, thanks to you all for being here. Really appreciate this. Now we have Clara here is going to read us a section of the book. Can we hear one of the recipes? I think this one is called Silken Rebellion Fish Fry. Yes, of course. Thank you. Silken Rebellion Fish Fry, or How to Make Unfresh Fish Taste Rather Delicious. This is an excellent training dish for a teenage refugee girl who is learning to cook. It is also useful for turning spoiled girls into useful household members and for transforming spoiled fish into a palatable meal. Finally, it's a powerful weapon in the arsenal of any resourceful cook faced with a poverty of resources because of its cheap ingredients and big flavors. This treatment also works well to enliven plain tofu. Ingredients. Two pounds old fish. Too much salt. Six to eight stalks lemongrass, white part only, minced. Eight to ten cloves garlic, minced. At least four Thai red chilies, minced. One cup neutral oil. Buy the least rotten fish you can find in the communal store or from your neighbor in the market. Grind down a knife edge as sharp as you can get it, the better to chop the tough lemongrass stalks into fine granules. In a bowl, let fish sit for one to two hours in too much salt, chopped lemongrass, garlic, and a vast quantity of chili. Overdoing it on the salt and chili will make your eyes water and imbue the old fish with a taste of forgetfulness. The idea is for you to forget that this is a very bad fish indeed. You want to taste salt and chili, not bad fish. In a medium skillet, heat oil over high heat. Turn the heat down and fry fish slowly until golden and crisp. Eat it with jasmine rice. If a bad fish memory re reasserts itself, season with more salt and chili as needed. Okay, that's beautiful. Uh, on the surface, it sounds like it's a recipe for re rehabilitating like two old fish using culinary disguise. But, you know, what do you tell me what you mean by the phrase silken rebellion, Shanta? Um, so, um, in, in our culture, as a young girl or teenage girl, obedient is what you are expected to be. And, but anyway, you always want to be a rebel in your own way. And it helps you to feel like, yes, I win, but nobody knows that you are a rebel. Mm. And um, so um, that's what I mean. I normally find a way how to to make the bad thing that you have to bear and make it bearable. Hmm. That's a lesson for all of us to take in. Now, Clara, can you read us the there's a, a recipe called slow noodles on page four, I believe? Yes. Thank you. My mother's slow noodle philosophy in the kitchen has become a philosophy for life. 
From her, I learned that the best dishes require extra time and patience to prepare. Later, I discovered that the path from hunger and poverty to economic self-reliance is long and hard, if it is even possible. And I see now that rebuilding a traumatized society after genocide takes many generations of investment. There are no quick fixes. That's what slow noodles means to me. Kim, let me ask you, how, how has the slow noodles philosophy really helped you in your life? And what does it mean to you now? Um, the first and most obvious thing is just in the kitchen, Chanta and Clara have taught me to be a much more careful cook and, I, and things that come out of my kitchen taste a lot better now. Hmm. But also the slow noodles philosophy that we we kind of put to words together, Chanta and I, over all those years of, of work came in really handy when we were trying to um, finish the manuscript, get it right, um, make it really reflect her voice and her experience properly and with utmost respect, but also to try to convince other people that they should, you know, that publishers, that an agent, that readers should take a chance on it. And that has been a really long, hard slog. And we, you know, I think we probably received about 20 rejections from agents, maybe 40 rejections from publishers. And so we had to continue to believe in it and, and, you know, slowly build believers. Mm. And so doing that work, you know, it reminded me of what slow noodles really means. And, and no matter how discouraged I became, I would just, I would keep thinking, no matter how difficult this book is to sell, it is nothing compared to Chanta's life story, what she's, what she's endured. So we, pers- we just continued to work on it. Chanta, let me ask you this. You know, here in America, our society is so fast-paced. We have to move on to the next thing. Even in here in the South, which is t- typically slower than other parts of the country. Uh, here in Nashville, things are building. There's a faster pace of life. But the slow noodles philosophy says to take your time, to slow down, to show care, but to me, it feels like it often it also brings perspective on things. It gives you the time to really look back at the positive things of the past and assess and work through the, the negative things that have happened in the past to put you right here in the present to make a good position for the future. What's your advice to Americans, us living here in this fast, fast society, this fast pace? How can we employ slow noodles to our lives? Um, for what we've been through on, and um, what Kim just has said, you can imply slow noodles into everything that happened to your life. Uh, be patient. Um, um, you don't feel desperate or you don't feel hopeless. Mm. There's always hope because my experience, when you lose everything, it's not the end of your life. That's what we would like the readers to bring. There's always a way um, to get back on your feet. Um, And uh, sooner or later, if you have hope, you have patience, um, it's always uh, have the way to help you out. Mm-hmm. Clara, real quick, 
Talk to me about this patience, this f philosophy of patience that your mom has. How it's helped you? Uh, <laughs> I I was very fortunate that my mother made sure that I never had to go through any hardships in life. But I think that she has taught me that failure is just another step to what you want in life. And I think she has taught me to be prepared. Uh, I know it's it's such a, a weird philosophy to have in my life because I have everything I need to succeed in life, an education, good food, friendships. But I think as, as a child of um, a refugee, you're always scared that something bad will happen. And I think my mother had taught me to be prepared for, for anything and, and I'm ready to, to face anything. I really want to thank you all for being here and thank you for this conversation today. My guests are Chanta Noon, the Cambodian author, cook, and nonprofit leader, her daughter Clara Kim, and Nashville-based writer and reporter Kim Green. Shanta's new memory, memoir, Slow Noodles, is available now. Head to slownoodles.com for more information. We're going to go out listening to BCK by Bexie Cham Krong. Thanks so much, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Elizabeth Burton and Tasha A.F. Lemley. It was directed by Tasha A.F. Lemley as well. Our board operators, Linville Lombardi, the masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.com.org, pardon me, <laughs> or wherever you get your podcasts. And the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other. <laughs>